So this morning we're going to look at uh, one verse, chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, but before we get there, we have to look at uh, the last uh, verse, right, or two verses of uh, the previous paragraph that we covered last week. It didn't say everything that I was hoping to say about that text. So we'll start out by reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, pause, I'll make some comments, and then uh, we'll go on to verse 7 after that. Uh, so, First Peter chapter three, we'll we'll, uh, we'll start reading in verse one. But I'm going to pray before we launch into the reading. And uh, you guys, yeah, did I get the? Uh, did you guys see the notes? Yeah, I moved them over. So probably th- anyone else need notes? All right, looks like everyone got them. Good. Oh, in the front. Yeah. Nice. All right. Let's, uh, oh, Boris, he does want one. Hannah wants one. Oh, Hannah, all right. Yeah, blame Hannah. <laughs> Anyone else? Anyone else? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the blessing that uh, we've had this morning together with your people uh, to worship. You have gathered us because of your... Uh, grace at work in our lives, we have this desire, this commitment, even this discipline to gather with your people. Uh, and we love, we love to gather with your people. Uh, it's, uh, and you tell us in uh, Ephesians that it's uh, in, that, in that corporate, uh, in the church corporate, that uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it's as we gather together that uh, there's something special about our uh, understanding of you that we gain, our appreciation of you. Uh, we, ha- we see your glory displayed uh, uniquely in the church among your people. And we, we see it when we gather for worship to sing, uh, to read your word, uh, to pray, even to hear announcements, to greet, e- even as, uh, as Ron was saying, uh, as part of our worship, uh, and certainly through your word. So we thank you for for your kindness to us, for, for gathering us to behold your glory. We, we do not deserve uh, that great privilege. Um, Lord, we've been challenged through your word uh, regarding how we live our lives. Uh, uh, you want us to proclaim your glory with our lips and with our tongues. We, you want us to explain the gospel and to, to live our lives, uh, this a lifestyle that would uh, complement that. Uh, that we would live sacrificially. So I pray that you'd help us to put that into practice um, and to do it out with great joy because we have been redeemed. We have beheld your glory. Help us to speak about it. And uh, help us as we open up First Peter. May we see your glory once again and love you and respond with joy and with Obedience, thankfulness, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, First Peter chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1, Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Right, same idea we saw this morning, right, that we may win some. Here he's talking about wives winning their husbands, pretty neat. Uh, so that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the Uh, Holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, as we saw, Peter's describing three aims of a wife who desires to display the glory of God's grace. She can do this uniquely uh, in marriage, uh, fulfilling her role as a wife. And so, He's, he's saying, aim at this, wives, submit to your husband with God-fearing and God-glorifying conduct, right? Verses 1 and 2. Uh, and then he says, uh, verse, uh, verses 3 and 4, catch God's eye 
with the way you dress your heart with imperishable clothes. Don't be focused on all the externals, the way that, uh, that which all the world is focused on, uh, what they count as really beautiful. Uh, you're, they're trying to catch everyone else's eye, uh, but make sure you catch God's eye with the way you dress your heart with imperishable clothes, uh, gentle and a quiet spirit, because God says in His sight that is precious. And then the third one, third aim, uh, aim at this, wives, let your hope in God drive out your fear. Um, and this is, uh, we finished up here, we basically got to that point, but I wanted to make some more comments, uh, because uh, when, he, when he calls them to hope in God, uh, he's, uh, he holds up uh, uh, the holy women uh, of old as examples, following this pattern, and then he narrows it down even more to Sarah in particular, says, follow her pattern. Uh, and that's the pattern that she set. What is that pattern? Uh, if you're following that pattern, if you do good, right? Verse 6. Uh, if you don't fear anything that's frightening, verse 6, you're following Sarah's pattern. If you submit to your husband, uh, and if you're a holy woman, I think we could say that too, right? Separated unto God. Uh, not separate unto your husband, but separate unto God. That's the priority. Uh, and then how do you do those things? Well, you hope in God. You're confident in Him. You're hoping in His undeserved favor, uh, His grace uh, that streams toward you in Christ. And, uh, and then he uses Sarah as this uh, example. Why does he bring up Sarah in the first place? Well, he's, he says one, and I mentioned this last time, uh, you're her children if you do this. Um, and so I think what he's saying is, uh, you know, we have their sons of Abraham. Those are true believers, right? Uh, I received that promise. When I think he's saying for the women, well, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're daughters of Sarah if you do this. So I think he's saying, it's another way of saying, this is how you live out your salvation, uh, your life of good works, and demonstrate that you truly are saved. Um, but then he gets even more specific uh, in verse 6 when he says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And we might wonder, where, where was this in the Old Testament? Where do, where do we see Sarah obeying Abraham? What's this example, really, that women are to follow? And our minds might first go to uh, that, that story, we remember, that account where Abraham went down to Egypt and he told his wife, Sarah, you need to lie about being my wife and tell everyone that you're my sister. And what did she do? She did it. Oh, man. And so she gets taken into the harem of the Pharaoh. I don't think that's what Peter has in mind when he says, do this. Um, I, I don't think that's the kind of compliance, the kind of uh, submission that he's talking about. He doesn't want you to appreciate that and emulate that. Of course not. No, no, because he's talking about women that, uh, that fear God. That's why he uses that word likewise. Wives, likewise. Likewise, right? So he's referring back to what he said about uh, the slaves being submissive to their masters in all fear. So it's in fear of God, right? So he's exhorting the, the women to fear God above all. Well, if you fear God above, is that what Sarah was doing in that time when she lied? She wasn't fearing God above all. So Peter, of course, is not saying mimic that, right? She wasn't hoping in God, uh, you know, trusting in God to take care of her no matter what. No, she, was, she gave into fear at that time. Uh, and that's why she... She lied, and she wasn't doing it for the Lord's sake, like Peter is exhorting here. So uh, a, a wife who has godly submission, the kind that Peter is calling us, calling them to have, well, that kind of wife will never follow her husband into sin. Never. So what does Peter have in mind? Why does he refer to Sarah obeying Abraham, calling him Lord? Uh, is there a specific occasion that Peter has in mind? I think so. And I think it because it's the only occasion where we have a record, a biblical record of Sarah referring to her husband as Lord. There's only one time where that happens, and that's Genesis 18, uh, verses 9 through 12. And uh, I'll read it to you. I'm not going to say, say a whole lot about the passage, but uh, so it says, they, that's referring to the angels speaking on behalf of God, they said to him, right, to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Uh, Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. 
right? So she was beyond childbearing years. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And we would never look at that text and think it has anything really to do with submission, right? And I think that's the, the very point that Peter is making. He's going to a somewhat obscure where she, uh, a text where she almost incidentally, off the cuff, refers to him as her Lord, which is just, uh, you know, uh, the appropriate way of showing respect in that culture. It was a cultural expression, right? Um, it's not like the text, the main point of that text is to show Whoa, look at, look at her submission to her husband. It's not. Um, but Peter here, I think, refers to it as, he's saying, this is, this is the way of life uh, that you're to embrace, showing respect to your husband. And even in the off-the-cuff remarks, you see that God has a role for you to play. He's given authority, headship to your husband, and you should just embrace that. And that just uh, shapes your whole perspective in all of life. And it comes out in even off-the-cuff remarks. Um, so I think that's why he does that. Um, and it's really surprising that he would, that he would go to that. Um, so, so she's to hope in God. She had learned this, you know, through the years. She was going to learn it there. Um, how, how do women then submit to their husbands? Where does that power come from? Because that's hard to do, right? Uh, Holy Spirit, Yeah. <coughs> And how, how does the Holy Spirit help her to hope in God? Well, he reminds her of the sure promises of God, the gospel promises, right? That's, that's where hope is. Hope is a confident expectation of future blessing, right? You've heard that definition before, right? There's, uh, there's, there's confidence, right? And there's an expectation because there's a promise that's being leaned on. She, uh, women are able to do this only as they put all their weight on God's promises. They go and look for God's promises in Scripture. They find them, and they say, how can I put my weight on that? How, what does that look like, to put all my weight on this and know that I'm safe by leaning hard on this? Um, and uh, so she thinks about God's sovereignty over her husband, right? God gives me promises that... that uh, uh, because he didn't spare his own son, he's, he's going to graciously, together with Christ, give me all things. He'll give me everything that I need. So uh, if my husband is uh, not fully trustworthy, well, I can, I can follow. I can put myself under his leadership. I can do that because my, my trust is ultimately in God. Uh, he'll take care of me. Uh, and so because God is sovereign over my husband. And if I do have to say, honey, I, I really want to embrace God's will and, and follow your leadership, but you know I can only do that when you, uh, when you call me to do something that's not out of step with what God is calling me to do. I have to be obedient to God. And so in this case, because you're, you're, you're commanding me to do something that is sinful, I can't do it, right? Well, what were, how, where does she get the hope in God to do that? Well, God will take care of me. I don't know how my husband will respond, and it's really a terrifying thing, but I'm going to be faithful to God because my hope is in Him, because He gave His Son for me. He didn't spare Him, but He gave Him up freely, so He'll take care of me. If I follow uh, what He says, um, then I can count on the Lord to take care of me because He's promised to do that. He'll give me everything that I need. Uh, she's got to be confident in God's love for her and in God's wisdom. Uh, you know, so... She's, she keeps entrusting herself to God, which is the idea that he communicated in the passage above that, right? Mindful of God, uh, the, the, the slave um, is able to endure sorrows unjust, uh, unjustly delivered to him, and he keeps his eye on Christ, and, and what we see Christ doing, he was entrusting himself, constantly entrusting himself. Uh, actually, it's constantly entrusting, right? There was no object. He's constantly entrusting himself, constantly entrusting all the people that were sinning against him, entrusting everything to his father uh, who judges righteously. And so uh, it's as a woman hopes in God, has a big view of God that she's empowered to, to give up uh, uh, those demands, right? Always making demands like my husband needs to do what I want. And she's able to not be, she's able to be free from trying to manipulate him and uh, pushing for her own way and, and really 
follow him. She can do that because her view of God is big. Um, so, questions about that? Comments? Before we go on to verse 7? My wives are like, no, that's enough for this one. Let's go on to verse 7. <laughs> no, I know they're not thinking that. They might in some places, but I doubt it among this people, by God's grace. Um, okay, verse 7. Um, before we read it, um, this is about how a husband can stand firm in grace, right? So chapter 5, verse 12, he says, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Well, what does it look like for a husband to do that, right? That's the point of this text. Maybe uh, some of you have seen that movie, Castaway. You guys seen Castaway? It's an oldie. Uh, an oldie but a goodie. Um, Tom Hanks plays uh, Chuck Nolan in the film. Uh, Chuck works for FedEx. He's on a plane that goes down, and he's stranded on a desert island. And on that desert island, he is cut off from the world. We feel bad for him. He's cut off from the world. He has to learn to do everything on his own. Uh, he's cut off from all people, and this is perhaps the most difficult thing when it comes to friendship. He has no one to love. His desire for a friend is so strong, you remember, that he makes friends with a volleyball and names him Wilson. Wilson, Wilson has a face and hair, but that's, uh, that's about it. Uh, and there's that very intense part of the movie where Chuck builds a raft and leaves the island, and while, while uh, Wilson is out to sea, um, Chuck is out there, and Chuck becomes separated from Wilson. You remember that scene? <sighs> Wilson is floating away, and Chuck is trying to swim to him, pulling the raft, but it's just too much, and he can't do it. And Wilson is gone. Oh, I'll tell you, it's enough to make a grown man cry. <laughs> just ask Mark Lejeune. It's sad because Chuck has been cut off from the world. He's cut off from all of his friends and family. That, that would help him. And then he's cut off from even the only potential volleyball friend. And we're sad for him because we're sad for him because we, we don't want to be alone. We don't want to be alone. We don't want to be cut off from loved ones. And while it's horrible, a horrible thought to be cut off from the world, we as Christians know how it would be far worse to be cut off from God, to, to have God be cut himself off from us, for God to feel distant from us, inaccessible to us. I mean, as Christians, we've come to know God personally. We've tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's the terminology that Peter's used. We've tasted his kindness, and there's nothing like it so sweet to us. We've enjoyed a sweet fellowship. We've enjoyed peace with God. And so now for us, there's nothing more terrifying than being cut off from God. Nothing more terrifying than feeling like or knowing that God is not listening to us. Could we be cut off from God in any real sense? Husbands most certainly can. No, they can't lose their salvation. They, have, uh, they still have eternal life, and it is just that. It's eternal. Uh, we know that. Peter's already talked about it because believers are kept by the power of God unto salvation, right? Chapter 1. But there is a way in which husbands, husbands can be cut off from God and His grace, and that's what Peter says in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. To hinder is to impede one's course by cutting off his way. To impede one's course by cutting off his way. Peter is saying, there's going to be something outside of you that's going to act to cut off your prayers. Right? passive voice, something else, something outside of you is going to happen to cut off, to, to impede your course by cutting off your way. Your access to God can be cut off, is what Peter's saying. 
It's striking. It's a striking. It's a striking comment. I mean, it's you read these this, uh, these exhortations to husbands, and you think, okay, I need to do these. But what is at stake? And he really raised the stakes, doesn't he? Husbands, could it be that you have cut yourself off from access to God through prayer? The writer of Hebrews celebrates the confidence that we can have as we approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Right? We know this. We love this. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's a confidence that we have uh, because of Christ, our our high priest. He's, He's sympathetic. But Peter says, Husbands can cut themselves off from this throne of grace, um, and he doesn't want to see this. He wants to make sure this doesn't happen. Uh, so remember, his goal, Peter's goal, is to help us identify the true grace of God and to stand firm in it. So here, here he's saying there's the grace of God. Well, this, is our, this is our favorite grace, right? Access to the throne of grace. But depending on how you treat your wife, you may find yourself hindered in that. So maybe God feels distant to you, maybe unreal. Maybe it's hard to pray. You're trying to form words in, a, in your prayer, but your mind is so full of worldly stuff and earthly feelings and fleshly desires that a peaceful, confident communion with God in prayer seems so far out of reach. So God acting to hinder. This is not a God is against you hindrance. Because the truth of the gospel says God is never against you, right? He's for you. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? So this is not a God is against you hindrance. This is a God is for you hindrance. Uh, it fits into, it's probably a subset of what the Puritans used to call spiritual desertion, where God would, would remove the, the sense of his presence or the enjoyment of his presence and access to him, and you would feel distant. Uh, why? That you might grope for him and find him. That you might seek after him. And so sometimes God wakes up husbands this way and gives them that, that feeling of God being inaccessible, that they might wake up. Um, and as, by the way, it's when I'm talking to men that are struggling with various things, having a hard time spiritually, it doesn't take me long to get to the questions. How's your relationship with your wife? How do you treat your wife? And then there's a whole bunch of other questions that I go into greater detail. You'll hear some of them here. Um, And I think about it myself quite a bit. How am I doing? How am I treating my wife? Two conditions, then, Peter gives us. Two conditions husbands must meet in order to receive mercy and find grace before the throne of grace. Two conditions husbands must meet in order to receive mercy and find grace before the throne of grace. Now, it does get a little bit confusing because the whole thing is grace, right? Even when we feel distant from Him and our prayers are hindered, that actually is God's favor, right? But what we're doing is we're not able to enjoy that grace. And sometimes that's the way Peter uses grace. Um, so Peter uses that word likewise to start off uh, the text, the paragraph. Um, we've seen that before. We talked about it last time when he addressed wives. Um, and I think, what's the train of thought? I think it goes back up to verses 17 and 18 when he tells uh, slaves to live with fear, live in fear. Um, and the fear he's talking about is... Uh, uh, the, the fear of chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, live in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And he's talking about a fear of God. Uh, and it's not a, a fear of God because you feel like you're going to lose your salvation or you won't have it or something like that. But uh, you address him as father, the one who's righteous, and so live in fear. Live in fear of displeasing this one who loves you the most. Uh, he's brought you into his family. He's, he's caused you to be born to a, a living hope, right? So he's given birth to you. So you are his, his son, uh, you're his child. And uh, so fear now living in a way that would bring him displeasure. 
that's the kind of fear we ought to have. And the husbands ought to have that fear, just like the wives ought to have that fear. And that should drive us to uh, beautiful behavior that's pleasing to Him and useful to Him and drawing people to uh, salvation in Him, winning them. Um, so, uh, so Peter exhorts these suffering Christians to obey the government. He tells servants to obey their masters. He tells wives to submit to their husbands. And now he turns to the husbands uh, in our text. And we would expect Peter to keep in this, along this train, same train of thought of talking about submission. But he doesn't. He doesn't say, okay, now husbands, you need to also submit to your wives. Um, he has different instructions for them. Tells them to do two things. These are the two conditions husbands must meet in order to receive mercy and find grace before the throne of grace. Husbands, first, you must lead your wife with understanding. Lead your wife with understanding. First part of verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. The word lead, I have the point worded lead your wife with uh, understanding. The word lead is not in our text, but the idea is most certainly there. Peter told the wives to submit to their husbands, indicating that their husbands uh, are, they have authority. Uh, they're to lead. Uh, so now he's speaking to husbands as leaders of their wives, and he's telling them how to lead, um, how to lead in such a way that they don't cut themselves off from the enjoyment of God's grace. Um, live with your wives. The phrase refers to the everyday relationship between a husband and wife. And he's, Paul, uh, Peter is telling them to be purposeful, be purposeful uh, in the everyday relationship with their wife, their wives. Many husbands are not purposeful when it comes to how they live with their wives. They're not aiming at anything in particular. They're just kind of drifting. They are not diligent husbands. And Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way, and he's calling them to diligence, to be purposeful. Don't drift. Uh, it's of utmost importance how you live with your wife. He says, live with them in an understanding way. More literally, live with your wives according to knowledge. According to knowledge. So there's information that a husband needs. Peter doesn't say it specifically what it is, what kind of knowledge, but it's the knowledge that's necessary to accomplish the task. Uh, it's natural for a man to uh, at times feel like or to recognize that he needs more knowledge, right? He gets a new job, doesn't know how to do it, and so he equips himself with what knowledge? Whatever knowledge is necessary to succeed, right? A salesman tries to know the product. He also tries to know the customer. A mechanic tries to know the vehicle he's repairing. He tries to know the tools at his disposal. Uh, he tries to know the boss's expectations. Whatever else is needed, he tries to know those things. Yet somehow, husbands are sometimes content to be ignorant. They don't know a lot of things, and they don't even care. They don't even think about how they don't know those things. Peter says, if you're content with ignorance, then you're, you're cutting yourself off from God in prayer. So what does he need to know? What's the husband need to know? Uh, I'm going to outline three things. He needs, to, he needs knowledge of God's plan for marriage. God's plan for marriage. What does God actually expect him to do with regard to his wife? So every husband needs to be a student of God's plan for marriage. The role of the husband, the role of the wife, the role of father and mother, the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. Um, and, of course, he doesn't need to only know facts, but he has to live, Peter says, live according to the facts. He has to know the facts with a view towards doing it and fitting in that pattern that God has set and ordained. So every husband must be a student. Uh, many people desire marriage, but they don't know much about what God says about marriage. Uh, and that's why... Single people really need this passage, this verse. Um, and it's why I, I think premarital counseling is so important. Um, we're signing up for a lot of responsibility. Uh, and marriage is something that God created, and He has a plan. He has a will for how we conduct ourselves in it. So more knowledge is 
needed. The second uh, category of knowledge, he needs knowledge of Christ and undeserved favor in him. Um, Peter's referred to ignorance uh, in this letter a couple times. Uh, and I think he's talking about an ignorance of Christ and grace. He's not personally acquainted with that. First Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There were lusts, uh, idolatrous desires that we had. I must have this. And they, f- they were flowing out of this ignorance that we have of, of God and of Christ, of the gospel, of undeserved favor. And so we followed those passions because we didn't know better. And so to live with your wife according to knowledge is to have knowledge of the gospel, of what God promises in the gospel and who he is to you uh, through the gospel so that you don't follow your passions in foolishness, in foolish ignorance, uh, but you live wisely. And you, don't, you stop saying, I need my wife to be this way in order for me to be happy. No, you don't. You have undeserved favor from God. You don't need anything to be happy and to be content, to be joyful, to be faithful. You don't need anything else. You're not enslaved. Former ignorance, yeah, you used to think you needed. I need my wife to be this way. I can't function this way. I need her affirmation. She doesn't ever respect me. Well, you don't need that. You have everything you need in Christ. So you need knowledge of, of, uh, of God and, and uh, the gospel, and that will... That will empower you, enable you to say no to your passions, your your selfish desires. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 15, he says, This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So this is the way the world lives, but you, husband, are to live according to knowledge. There's so much knowledge the Lord's given you. Uh, Mind that truth. Um, And I think that's kind of what he has in mind in chapter 2, verse 19 doesn't use the word ignorance or knowledge, but it's the idea, I think. This is grace when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Right? That's what enables us to uh, endure sorrows that are wrongs that are done to us, unjust sorrows. How can we do that? We're mindful of God. God is sovereign. God is faithful. God is loving me right now. God is wise in what he's giving me. Right? All these things, all this truth about God floods our minds and empowers us to be what He calls us to be. Uh, and if we're not soaking in these truths every day and enjoying God and who He is, how in the world can we say no to our, our flesh and to our sinful desires? So we need the knowledge of Christ and undeserved favor in Him. And then third, you need, you need to know your wife. You need to know your wife. You need to be a student of your wife. Uh, you may have noticed that men and women are different. One scientific study says there are 78 genes that separate men from women. And an uh, article came out talking about this, and then a survey was conducted to find out what people thought those differences actually are. And here are some of the responses. Uh, one guy said, men appreciate the importance of a 75-inch screen TV. Women do not. Uh, one guy says, men speak in sentences, women speak in paragraphs. Uh, one woman says, on being told that someone has bought a new car, women usually ask what color it is, men ask what kind it is. Uh, one woman says, women put things on the bottom stair to take up next time she has to go upstairs. Men just step over them until told to pick them up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. (laughs) One guy said, men can store useless information like the top speed of a car they are never going to drive, let alone own. (laughs) One woman says, men can balance an infinite amount of trash in the wastebasket without noticing it is full. (laughs) One guy says, "When when men want something, they ask for it. When women want something, they make a point distantly related to the subject and wait for a response. And one woman said, women know what to do when someone starts to cry. Men tend to shuffle out of the room, mumbling something about doing the grouting. (laughs) Uh, One guy says, women have the ability to brain dump their entire day when they get home. Men can only remember that it went okay. (laughs) And then one guy says, women recall every outfit they have worn for the past two decades. Uh, Men can't remember 
what they were wearing yesterday without looking on the floor next to the bed. <laughs> so people see, uh, obviously, a lot of differences between men and women. And uh, they might say things like this, to be happy with a woman, this is what someone has said, to be happy with a woman, you must love her a lot and not try to understand her at all. And the statement like that, and you hear others like that, really communicates a kind of hopelessness. And the truth is, it can be a struggle. There are differences. Um, Someone said there are two times that a man does not understand a woman, before marriage and after marriage. (laughs) So this is is a challenge. It does take work. Uh, We do need the exhortation, men. But God gives grace for you to do it. As you embrace it, you are identifying the undeserved favor of God. You'll see it at work. He enables you to do this. Uh, You're to live with her in a way that reflects a caring and sympathetic understanding of who she is, her likes and dislikes, her capabilities, her limitations, her joys, her challenges, her sorrows, her fears, her temptations, her physical needs, her spiritual needs, uh, what communicates love to her, what communicates indifference or dislike to her. What encourages her? What discourages her? Uh, you know, don't, don't be generic. Don't be generic. Every wife is unique, and she changes. So keep up. Many times every day. That's right. <laughs> and then Peter adds that phrase, as with a weaker vessel, as with a weaker vessel, uh, a feminine one. Um, that word for vessel that's used there that Peter uses is a jar or a container or an instrument. That's the way that Greek word is used. Uh, now, some have come to this text and said that a husband should treat his wife as a fragile vase. Uh, maybe you've heard that before. Uh, I, th- I agree with the sentiment. Uh, certainly, every, every husband should treat his wife as though she were a fragile vase, right? Precious, valuable, being careful with her, uh, loving, gentle, and so forth. Uh, But I don't really think that gets at the meaning of of Peter's words when he says, as with a weaker vessel. Uh, The word might be uh, used to refer to a jar, but when people think of a vase, they think of something that is very precious and valuable. Um, And uh, Peter, you know, is uh, fond of that idea of things that are precious, naming things that are precious and valuable. Uh, He said the blood of Christ is precious. He said Christ as the stone laid in Zion is precious to those who believe. Uh, He also said a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. So though Peter is quick to talk about things that are precious and valuable and to show the relative value of things, he doesn't pick a word here that speaks of value or preciousness. Um, It refers to a person as an instrument in God's hand. That's really the idea of a vessel a person as an instrument in God's hand. Uh, And the emphasis seems to be on her usefulness because she was made for something. She was saved for something, just as the man was, right? Um, The term recalls God's creation of all people, both men and women, and is a reminder both of human frailty and of our obligation to God, our Creator, to be useful to Him. Uh, He made us for a purpose, and so we're vessels. Were his vessels. Uh, the word weaker, as used, it talks about a weaker vessel. It indicates that she has less capacity or, or she's limited in ability in some way, right? In some way. Not in every way, obviously, right? Peter doesn't say she's a weak vessel, but a weaker vessel. In other words, both husband and wife are weak vessels, but the wife is in some way weaker. In what way is she weaker? No one says she's weaker intellectually. Certainly, Peter doesn't have that in mind. Some some have said she's weaker morally. Uh, They might point to the fact that Eve was first deceived in the garden. Satan went to her, not to Adam, because she was weaker. Some some would argue that. I, I don't believe that to be true. I certainly don't think this passage and this phrase teaches it. Uh, in fact, it's, it's contrary, I think, to the second part of this verse when he says, wives are fellow heirs of the grace of life. Um, I, I don't think it's intellectual and moral weakness that Peter has in mind. Uh, there's three possibilities here. 
could be physical weakness. And so if that's the case, she's a weaker vessel, then Peter's saying that he shouldn't be, the husband shouldn't be harsh uh, towards her. She, there's, a, there's a physical weakness there. Uh, emotional sensitivity, maybe, maybe that's what Peter has in mind. Some might suggest he, he, he needs to be extra sensitive in that case, to be knowledge, to live with her in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Um, be extra sensitive, be patient and gracious. Um, or uh, it could mean that she has less authority and power. Her role is weaker. Um, and so he shouldn't take advantage of her vulnerability. And the context seems to indicate weakness in the sense of that last one, the limited capacity when it comes to authority or power. All of us are weak instruments. The instrument doesn't rise up in the face of God and say, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to live as I want. No. We're weak in that sense where we don't have the capacity to choose that. Uh, We don't have the freedom to do that. We are under His authority. And there's other authorities, and God shows us our vulnerability. We have human government. You can't just go do whatever. You can't drive however you want to drive. God has given us a government and told us to drive a certain way through those authorities. And so there's a kind of vulnerability that we know. Uh, Well, so a wife is a weaker vessel because she's under the authority of her husband. Um, She is more limited in her authority. We're both weak. In God's grace, He provides marriage to provide stability through the mutual affection, encouragement, and accountability of marriage. Peter therefore directs husbands that instead of misusing their authority for selfish ends, they should use it to bestow honor on their wives. But sadly, many men ignore their responsibilities and women don't receive the protection and leadership God intends for their husbands to give them. They should see that their wives are vulnerable, limited in that capacity, and then God has given them authority in order to bless them and care for them. But so often... They use their, oh, God's given me authority, so I want you to serve me and do whatever I want. And they totally turn that God's intention and role on its head. Um, So she has less control. She's more vulnerable. She was created by God to follow the leadership of her husband. If her husband is a bad leader, she suffers because she has to submit to him. Right? We, we've already said if he's telling her to sin or forbidding, forbidding her to do something that God commands, then she shouldn't do it. Right? But there's a whole bunch of other things that he might have her do that don't require her sin. And so she suffers if her husband is a bad leader. If her husband is lazy, she suffers because she has to submit to him. If her husband is harsh, she suffers because she has to submit to him. If her husband is foolish with regard to the finances of the home, she suffers because she has to submit to him. This is, I believe, why Peter dedicates six verses to helping wives, talking about hoping in God. Um, He exhorts them to remember God, fear God, hope in God. God designed the wife to need the protection and leadership of her husband. So husbands, give her the protection and leadership God wants you to give to her. Use the authority God's given you to bless your wife. So husbands, you need to lead your wives with understanding. Be be easy to submit to. Don't be harsh with your wife. Don't be gruff. She has to submit to you. Make it easy and attractive. Don't belittle her or talk down to her. Don't make decisions without her. Make decisions with her. Help her know your reasoning. Give her as much explanation as she wants. Don't don't get upset when she asks you to explain why you make a particular decision. Remember her position. Be understanding. Don't, Don't micromanage her. Don't don't require needless exactions of obedience. You're sinning when you do that. 
because you're supposed to live with her in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, recognizing her position. Don't be a lazy husband. God wants you to, God wants her to follow your lead, so lead. You're to lead your wife spiritually. Are you leading your wife spiritually? Do you help her battle her sin? Do you help her to uh, read Scripture and be consistent in that? Do you help her to pray uh, and encourage her to do that? Do you help her to thrive in her relationships in the church? Do you help her to uh, be useful in the church, using her gifts to build up the body? Do you help to train and discipline the children, ensuring that you're in sync in your, uh, in your training of the children? Are you giving direction and encouragement to your wife in that regard? When there are important decisions to be made, be involved. Don't, don't be lazy and put all these things on her. Uh, don't provoke her to anger by letting her figure out everything on her own. Lead in an understanding way. God has called her to respect you and to submit to you. Uh, no doubt she wants to know the one that she must respect. So be knowable. Uh, one of those jokes, uh, joke lines in there, right, was uh, uh, the woman does a data dump, right? I'll tell you about my day. And he says, ma'am, my day was okay, right? Well, she wants to know you. It's hard to follow leaders that you don't know or that, are un, that won't be knowable. She should know how you struggle, what, what difficulties you face. Let her, let her know you. Um, be willing to talk to her. Uh, do you know what discourages your wife? Are you leading her according to knowledge? What kind of temptations? What are the two greatest temptations that your wife faces? What counsel have you given her? Um, what are your wife's most significant and persistent fears and worries? And how are you leading her regarding those things? Um, Stuart Scott uh, lists three ways you can get to know your wife better. Observe her. Uh, her fears, temptations, her likes, dislikes. We talked about that. Observe her. Uh, take some notes. You can take notes on your wife. Uh, ask her questions. This is the second thing he says. Ask her questions. Um, I, I would encourage, mo I encourage men to ask more questions than they initially come up with. <laughs> We sometimes have a, uh, an, some questions that come intuitively. She says something like, what? You know, okay, we give a, a quick question there. But ask more questions and trying to think up more questions to go further because sometimes people have a hard time expressing themselves, right? They're tired, they're weary, they're afraid, whatever. They're impatient, they're anxious, so they have a hard time telling you what they think. And so you want to help. And sometimes those conversations... They don't happen in a moment. They happen over days or over weeks. Circle back around. You put a reminder on your phone. I'm going to bring this up later at an important time, a helpful time, <laughs> plan time. You say, I've been thinking about this. I had a couple other follow-up questions, right? Make it easy for her to express uh, her, uh, her concerns or um, everything with you. And then uh, Stuart... Scott lists a third way, experience her world. And so he's, he lists as an example, do her responsibilities with her. Now, don't get sucked into doing it all the time. <laughs> there are roles, right? But um, yeah, be sympathetic and empathetic. Uh, how, how do you know what she's experiencing unless there are times when you're engaging in the work with her? Uh, Peter is calling us to effort, and it requires effort. So if you don't put effort into these things, well, uh, he gives the, the threat, right, at the end. So lead your wife with understanding. And by the way, I think those things all, together, uh, all go together. Your understanding of God, the purpose and plan for marriage, uh, your understanding of the gospel. Um, it's your understanding of the gospel, God's undeserved favor for you, that, that makes you able to communicate with your wife. Right, because you're going to have certain fears. Oh, I don't want to ask about that anymore because I don't want to hear her talk about that again. Right? You're, you're afraid. You're anxious. 
You're just, you're just a jerk inside, right? <laughs> this is what it is. And it's God's undeserved favor. Your knowledge of Christ's love for you and his, his, uh, the blessings that he gives you in Christ that, that frees you up to do that. You can, you can hear it. You can have those difficult discussions. Uh, so it all goes together. Um, so lead your wife with understanding. Number two, honor your wife, keeping God's grace in proper perspective. Honor your wife, keeping God's grace in proper perspective. Honor your wife, keeping God's grace in proper perspective. All right, verse 7 again, from the top. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, so that they are heirs, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Though she's a weaker vessel, don't look down on her. Peter says, show her honor. Uh, Many men in Peter's culture looked down on their wives. And of course, it wasn't just in Peter's day. It's all over the place. Men looking down on their wives. And so he says, live with your wife according to knowledge as a weaker vessel, a feminine one, but don't think of her as though she were weaker and deserves no honor or respect or that she deserves less honor and respect. Don't think she is unworthy of your respect. Esteem her highly. You show her honor in many ways. You show her honor by listening to her. Isn't she worth the time? You remember what she says. That's how you honor her. You remember what she says. Aren't her words, don't they, aren't they worth something to you? Um, some husbands have a really hard time remembering their, uh, what their, things that their wife has said. And they need to use Evernote. They need to use reminders on their phone. They need to use the old-fashioned pen and paper, whatever it takes. I mean, are her words important? Are her thoughts important? We have to show that by remembering what they say. We do this with everybody, right? But, but the husband especially should do this with his wife. Um, you talk to her. How, how do you show honor? Uh, you talk with her when she wants to talk to you. Um, aren't her desires significant to you and important to you and worthy of your attention? Sometimes it's every time she says something, well, not right now. Well, there may be times in which, okay, okay, maybe it's not an appropriate time. But that should not be the pattern. Because, because our wives are, we, we want to honor them. They are precious to us. Uh, we make decisions with her. That's how you show honor. You listen to her appeals. You ask for her input. Um, you show her she's valuable to you by doing practical things like opening the door for her. You think of ways. How can I show honor to her? Show her that she really is awesome to me, precious to me. Give her some kind of recourse for those times when she doesn't think you're making a wise decision. Invite her to speak into your life. Invite her to suggest that uh, you seek wise counsel from others in the church. Honey, if I'm doing something, you don't think it's wise, I encourage you to speak because... Your opinions are important to me. Your thoughts are important. Uh, They're valuable to me. Uh, So I don't want you to be in a place where you feel like you can't say anything. If I'm making you feel that way, then I'm sinning against you. So I I just want to swing the doors wide open. You can say things to me. I know that you'll say them in a way that that where you're so in a way that you're shows that you're observing God's role to to be submissive. I know I know that's the way that you are. but I don't want you to think that means that you're quiet and you can't say things to me, right? So you, you open the doors for her to do that. Uh, you talk about her respectfully to others. That's another way you show honor to her. When she's there and even when she isn't, you know, speaking of bad cooking, my wife, obviously, we cannot say things like that. Don't be condescending to her. Well, that was stupid. Why would you even suggest that? Right? That's a lot different than expressing a contrary opinion or a disagreement. That's an insult. You're saying she's dirt. That was stupid, right? I mean, you're attacking her. That was stupid. I know you're not saying you're stupid, honey, right? That obviously, <laughs> that, would be, that would not be showing her honor, right? But even saying 
when she makes a suggestion or asks a question, honey, that is stupid. You're insulting her. I can't believe you would say something like that. Waste my time? Waste everyone's time? Are you that ignorant? I mean, you are really not showing her honor. Uh, you've got to be kidding me. right? I mean, there's no technically bad words in there. You've got to be kidding me. But that demeans her. Uh, and so I can't talk that way. Uh, don't view her as your servant. View yourself as her servant. You're a servant leader. Given authority in order to serve her. Not given authority so that she can serve you. <clears throat> Show her affection. Kiss her. Long kisses. Many long kisses. Hug her. Not right now, though, right? Not, well, if... <laughs> you, I want you guys to feel freedom. <clears throat> Not a, uh, no, I said a long one. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> you don't have that much time. <laughs> we don't have that much time. Oh, we got time. Oh, man. How many children do you have? Six. You've had some long kisses, haven't you? We've had some long kisses. <laughs> Not enough. You yeah. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. You carry things for her, right? There's so many ways to show honor. You protect her physically. You protect her spiritually. And why should you honor? Why? What should motivate you? Why is honor so appropriate? He says you do it as as a fellow heir of the grace of life. You both share in the grace of life. You're equal spiritually. Though she's weaker in some way, she isn't weaker in when it, when it comes to grace, right? In the grace department, she's not weaker. What is the grace of life? Some say it refers to, it's a way of referring to the married life. That's marriage. It's the grace of life. Well, it certainly is a grace of life, right? Marriage is awesome. Uh, what a gift. Um, others have said Peter is speaking of physical life. God is gracious to us and that he gives us all physical life. So you're a fellow heir of the grace of life. He gives physical life to you. So. But uh, I don't agree with those interpretations. Uh, I think Peter is abundantly clear about what grace is in this letter and what it means to be an heir of grace, and uh, he's clear about when we receive this grace. It's the whole point of the book. God gives us undeserved favor from God. That's what grace means, unmerited, undeserved favor, or ill-deserved favor. He causes us to be born again to a living hope. You've experienced that. He's saying, hey, your wife has, has too. He gives us hope, joy, and an imperishable inheritance. He re reserves it for us in heaven. He keeps us by his very power, by means of our faith. He promises us praise, glory, and honor when we see Christ's glorious face. He saves us from a futile way of life. He gives us the imperishable word, uh, which produces in us a true love for the brethren. He shows us his kindness. He shows us mercy. We're a chosen race, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. This is undeserved favor gushing all over our heads. We are rich. We are blessed. We receive it at the revelation of Jesus Christ, but we're receiving it even now, all these blessings. So husbands, remember this. Show your wife honor. Um, why? Uh, three strands of reasoning. First, God shows her honor. Right? That's why you should do that. Show her honor because God shows her honor. You're, she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. God shows her honor. You should too. How horrible that you might dishonor one that God is honoring. Right? And you think about that. Bye, guys. Like half the party's leaving. Yeah, well, I, I don't need an explanation. It's not going to work. I'm going to be upset anyway. <laughs> so so God shows her honor. And, and I think about uh, when that example I gave when saying, well, that was stupid, honey. That was stupid. Why would you even say that? Yeah, like in that moment, when you speak that way, you're dishonoring one whom God is honoring. It's just amazing. You're, you're at odds with God. Um, 
Second, you're, you're another second strand of reasoning there, built into that phrase, you're a fellow heir of the grace of life. Uh, you're an heir of grace, meaning you're an heir of undeserved favor. You didn't earn this favor that you have. Right? That's how the Pharisees would view it, right? Yeah, it's all by grace. It's all, it's all by grace, but I earned it. I earned that grace. <clears throat> well, no. Grace is undeserved favor. There's no, there's no sense in which we earn it. Uh, you've fallen into it. You are totally dependent on God. Don't look down on your wife. Don't speak condescendingly to her. Um, third, uh, the third strand of reasoning, uh, she's an heir, inheritor of grace that makes her rich to bless you. She's an heir of grace to bless you. She has something that you need. You need grace from God. Much of that grace that comes from God will come through your wife. That's an amazing thing. I mean, she's given, she's given you a little, uh, is depository the right word? Of grace. She's, she's like a little bucket of grace. That might sound a little demeaning, I guess. <laughs> well, we did say vessel. So, okay, jar. Uh, okay, I'm getting myself in trouble. All right. <laughs> she's, she's, a, she's a rich person. She's rich in grace. Uh, she's been equipped by God's grace to display His glory to you. And you need that, apparently, because God gave you her to you. God gave you her. Oh, that was kind of confusing. He gave her to you. There we go. And you need to see God's glory. She's a display of God's glory. That's why we need the church, right? Uniquely displays the glory of God. Oh, what happens when we miss out on church? You can't listen online. You need the church. This is where God's spirit dwells uh, and manifests his, his glory in a unique way. Well, the same thing in marriage. You need that vessel of grace because you need more grace. That's why God gave her to you. He gave that to you to show you his undeserved favor through her. So... So honor her. And that's why I say ask for her input. Yeah, yeah, you are responsible for all the decisions. By saying ask for her input, make decisions with her, we're not saying, hey, there's no difference in the roles. Uh, you just work together and take a vote. Well, I don't know what that would mean. Uh, and make decisions that way. No, no, no. You're responsible, men, for all the decisions. You're responsible for the leadership. But if you're responsible, that ought to make you very excited that you've got an heir of grace that you're married to. So get her input. Don't be a fool. Don't despise God's gift to you, that grace. That's how I think of elders. Elders are responsible for the, the leadership in the church. But does that mean that the elders seclude ourselves in a closet and make all the decisions? Who cares about the church, what they think? That would be dumb. Because you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And He gives you wisdom. And sometimes He'll give you wisdom that He doesn't give me or my fellow elders. So if you have input, for the sake of the church, for the glory of God, share it. If you think the elders are maybe making an unwise decision, well, that, that can happen. Elders can make unwise decisions sometimes, right? Uh, hopefully not a bunch of them, but they're qualified men. It shouldn't be that pattern, right? especially when they're conferring. But what I'm saying is that all of God's people are indwelt by God's Spirit, and God will give you wisdom, and you should share it. Uh, and in a, a marriage, yes, the, the men are responsible to lead. They, they better not just keep doing whatever their wives say because they're responsible. But in humility, recognizing their need of grace and the grace that God's given their wives, they should listen. Otherwise, they're proud. Right? And foolish. So, so husbands, don't cut yourself off from grace. Um, you can't earn God's listening ear. Oh, I went overtime. I do need my wife. This is a long kiss. <sighs> I can't 
can't wait for the next one. <laughs> That's true, man. After I study this text, I'm like, man, I love my wife. She is so awesome. She is such a gift to me. And it actually does make me sad that she's not here right now. Because I like for her to hear me exhorting myself regarding these, regarding these things. Well, I guess that's the conclusion. Unplanned. Okay, I'm going to pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that you've given us, the undeserved favor, your undeserved favor that we have that sustains us, that has transformed our lives. Now we are forgiven. Now we are changed. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might, having died to sin, that we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed and so called to a new kind of life. God, would you please help the men here, help us to be godly husbands. Please make us faithful for your glory. This is part of the beautiful behavior, the excellent behavior that you use to make the gospel attractive to lost people, that display, it's this behavior that displays the glory of your son, the Lord Jesus, so that people would see the hope that we have. So Lord, for, for your own namesake, make us as men faithful to love our wives. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.